Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We're learning all about our health and diet, and now let's look at the wisdom of the body. Does the body have nutritional wisdom? Clara Davis did studies showing that young children choose wisely the foods that their individual bodies need, but older children do not have this skill. Animals have this ability to choose the foods that their body needs. It's an individual thing, and animals choose individually. Did we lose this? How did we lose this? And how do we get it back? Today we have Fred Provenza, who has just written a book called Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom. He's originally from Colorado, where he worked on a ranch near Salida while earning his B.S. degree in wildlife biology from Colorado State University. Upon receiving a B.S. degree in 1973, he became a ranch manager. He and his wife, Sue, spent seven years working on the ranch. He left the ranch in 1975 so he can work as a research assistant and technician at the Utah State University, where he earned his M.S., and Ph.D. degrees in range science. He's a faculty member in the Department of Range Science from 1982 to 2009. Currently, he is a professor emeritus in the Department of Wildland Resources at Utah State University. For the past 30 years, his group has produced groundbreaking research that laid out the foundations for what is known as behavioral-based management of landscapes. This work inspired researchers in disciplines diverse as chemical ecology, ruminant nutrition, human nutrition, and biopsychology, animal welfare, landscape restoration ecology, wildlife damage management, pasture and rangeland science and management, rural sociology, and eco-development. Along with his colleagues and graduate students, he's been the co-author of 250 publication and peer-reviewed journals and books. This has led in 2001 to an international network of scientists and land managers from five continents. This consortium, known as BEHAVE, Behavioral Education for Human, Animal, Vegetation, Ecosystems, is committed to integrating behavioral principles and possesses with local knowledge to enhance ecological, economic, and social values of rural and urban communities and landscapes. They want to inspire and enable people to understand ours and other creatures to fashion environmentally friendly solutions that reconcile differences of opinion on how to manage landscapes. In this process, everyone is involved as a student attempting to better understand behaviors at all levels from genes to landscape and use this understanding of behavior to help people learn to appreciate our differences our collective strength in sustaining communities and landscapes that integrate diverse ecological, economic, and social values services. Welcome, Dr. Provenza. Thank you very much, Dr. Susan. Nice to be here with you. 
Okay, so glad to have you here. So let's start off. When did you get interested in the areas that you spent the last 40 years studying? As a child, actually, I was just fascinated by natural environments, everything that's there from the plants to the the wildlife species, all the different insects, birds, mammals, all of that just absolutely fascinated me. When I, uh, you mentioned the undergraduate education at Colorado State University in wildlife biology, I just uh, absolutely loved the courses, learning more and more about soils and plants and animals and how they continually create within the environments they inhabit. Uh, and the ranch as well, you know, working day in, day out, hands-on with, with soil, with plants, with irrigation, with animals. All that just really stimulated a fascination uh, that that was there from from the days of a child, and uh, and led to a curiosity about uh, about wanting to do research uh, to better understand uh, the behaviors of animals. Why do they do what they do? For instance, the wild, all the different wild creatures that were there in the areas where where we lived on the ranch, as well as the cattle, the sheep, the goats. The, and the different creatures that, that we were raising, I, I was just very curious about why do they do what they do, how do they do it, uh, and so forth. Wow. But one thing in your I mean, there's many interesting points in your book, but you mentioned nutritional wisdom. Does the body of animals and humans have a nutritional wisdom? And how is I'm um, good. Claire Sylvia's story related? Okay, I... I make the point that, that that is the case. And I'll give some backstory here. When, when I was a graduate student, it's fair to say that for domestic animals, um, people, scientists did not believe that domestic animals possessed nutritional wisdom. It was kind of a funny, fuzzy deal related to wild animals. I think there was a general belief they, they must have it. They must know what and what not to eat, where and where not to go, how to reproduce successfully, or they wouldn't be here. But the notion was that domestic animals had lost that as a result of 10,000 years of domestication. We'd bred that out of them, however that might have worked. Um, And I guess in those early days, I wouldn't have had, very early days, too much opinion one way or another. I was fascinated by why, why... what animals ate and wanting to try to understand that. But as I worked with goats down in southern Utah, which would be 45 or more years ago now, watching what they did really, really stimulated me to think, you know, these creatures know a lot. They know a lot about what's going on here, and they probably do still have nutritional wisdom. We've just not um, understood how that works, basically. Um, so those those observations of what was happening with goats then led into the 30 years that you were talking about of different kinds of studies to try to determine, do they ask them the question, put them in situations and ask them the question, do, are you able to rectify deficits when, if we make you deficient in a macronutrient like energy or protein or a mineral like phosphorus or sodium or sulfur or a vitamin like vitamin E. Do, can, do you have the ability to do that? And so our approach throughout those years was always to ask the animal the question, to put them 
in the case of nutritional wisdom, put them in a particular nutritional state, which would be a mild state of deficiency, not not strong, not extreme, mild states of deficiency, and then ask the through well-designed experiments, ask them the question. And over and over and over again, they they answered in ways that were consistent with this idea that they, they do possess nutritional wisdom. Um, I mentioned in the book that there are really three legs to the stool. I don't think I say it like that, but it boils down to that as a person's reading through these various chapters. The one leg is what I refer to as flavor feedback relationships. Um, the second it has to do with the availability of alternative forages, what's available to the animals. And the third has to do with the social, cultural, what I refer to often as transgenerational linkages. And unless all three of those legs are in place, nutritional wisdom uh, simply can't be manifest. When all three of those legs are in place, uh, then you get to what, where the wild animals are. Of course, they're able to do that. They wouldn't be around if they didn't. So um, let me take a, a minute and just elaborate briefly on those three legs to the stool, starting with this flavor feedback relationships. And um, this is probably one of the most surprising things to me. I, it stopped me in my tracks so much and made me, made, made me stop and just, Ponder, ponder, ponder. How could this be happening? Now I take it for granted. We've done it so many times for so many years. But the idea here is that the, that palatability is more than a matter of taste. Certainly taste and our experience of taste are fundamental to that. But there's much more to it. And it has to do with feed, what I refer to as feedback. Um, if we think about why we eat food and what it is that we're feeding, we realize that ultimately it's cells. It's cells and organ systems, and they each with their needs, hearts, lungs, central nervous system, and so forth, and including the microbiome. That's the hot topic nowadays in human research. Everything's revolving around that, and I certainly appreciate it, but I think uh, it can become a myopic focus, too, that that's the be-all and the end-all where it's part of a, of a system. But this feedback is coming from these cells and organ systems, including the microbiome, and it's in response to what I talk about always as these so-called primary compounds, which would be uh, energy, protein, minerals, vitamins, what we typically consider uh, the nutrients, but also this vast, vast, vast array of, of so-called secondary compounds or phytochemicals, as I like to, to call them, um, that all plants, all plants produce them. There's tens of hundreds of thousands of these compounds when you look in plant communities. Well, they get the name secondary compound because originally when plant biochemists and physiologists were studying plants, they didn't know what roles these compounds played. They were studying how NP and K influence responses of plants, but all these other compounds, nobody had a clue. In the last probably 40 to 50 years, uh, ecologists have shown that they, they play fundamentally important ecological roles 
in uh, in communities and everything going on in ecosystems, but we're learning they're also fundamentally important in the health of domestic animals and and wild animals and our health as well. So that's long-winded, but this feedback is coming in response to the to all these different compounds. And it's what enables health, I would argue, at a fundamental level. And it's not just the primary compounds, it's also the secondary compounds. And what and how does the feedback then, occur? What, do, what does the animal notice? What, what, uh, what, what goes on with this feedback at a, at a mechanistic level, and we don't need to, to go into details, but it involves um, peptides, hormones, neurotransmitters that are being produced in in the, the cells and organ systems that are altering liking. That's getting to your question. That's the key deal is that it's changing liking as a function of need. And so um, if an animal is deficient, for instance, in phosphorus and the studies where we were doing that, they are going to show an enhanced liking for foods that contain phosphorus. And there's clever ways you can do experiments. We don't need to go into this that, um, that make it so that you can reveal this by, by altering the flavor of, of foods and then infusing phosphorus into the gut when animals eating food with apple flavor, for instance, and the, the animal shows an incredible preference for apple flavored straw that has no value to it when phosphorus is being infused into the gut. We did many studies um, to try to do to, in careful ways so that, so that um, you could make the, the argument. And again, that's a nuance we don't need to go into. But the key point relative to your question is that it's altering liking as a function of need. And, um, and that's happening at a non-cognitive level. It's not something that the animal sits and consciously thinks about. Now I'm going to like apple-flavored straw because it was paired with phosphorus. It's simply happening at a non-cognitive level. Feedback is altering liking uh, in that sense. I often ask people, which enzymes uh, and neurotransmitters are you thinking to release right now to uh, process the meal you just ate? And everybody laughs and... Um, <laughs> And for good reason, because we don't do that. That's it's happening at a at a non cognitive level. So, so that's one part. Uh, Doctor Susan would be the uh, the the flavor feedback relationships, and that they're just fundamental. And as I say, when we first started doing those studies and infusing nutrients into the gut and seeing total changes in liking for non nutritive foods as a function of that, it, it First studies we did, it just it really stopped me in my tracks to think that something that's being infused either into the gut or into the into the uh, into veins or whatever it is 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 doing that. It's like wow, that's really pretty amazing. So that was that's one part one part to this nutritional wisdom. The second part though is the availability of alternative foods. What's there in the environment? And that's where this whole notion of biodiversity that I learned about as a young undergrad 50 years ago or more, they're talking about in ecology the importance of biodiversity on landscapes for the health of, of, of creatures below ground, above ground, for diversity of different kind of animal creatures. This biodiversity of plant, the diversity of plants and biodiversity is really important. Um, 
I got the words in those days. I understood it, and I appreciated it. But after 40 years of doing these studies, I just so appreciate that when you have a diverse array of different plant species on a landscape, that literally becomes the nutrition centers and the pharmacies that enable animals to maintain health. And a lot of that's maintained prophylactically as opposed to therapeutically. We showed in many, many studies that animals can self-medicate therapeutically. When they get sick, if they learn to do that, they will select foods that rectify illnesses. But the key point is that when you have really good diversity and animals that are being um, cared for in proper ways, uh, health, health is an outcome of that health and production of animals. And it's interesting to see uh, many folks I visit with nowadays, uh, given the interest in planting cover crops, in keeping landscapes uh, with plants on them rather than, than plowing and leaving landscapes um, you know, just barren with plowed open soil. Many people are planting cover crops. They're planting diverse arrays of cover crops. And over and over again, I'm hearing morbidity and mortality, especially on these stalker cattle, what are referred to as stalker cattle, young animals that are moved to uh, different environments. Morbidity and mortality is going down, and they attribute that to the, the diverse array of plant species that are out there. So that's the second leg to the stool of this business, the third leg is the social, cultural, transgenerational part, and there's no way in my mind to overstate how amazing that is for one, how important it is for two. I think it's fair to say that one of the key things our research did was to highlight how important learning is in food and habitat selection, in everything that animals do. Why is learning so important? Well, we have this incredibly stable genome. All creatures do. It's very, very stable. Yet it's embedded in these environments that are forever changing from morning to afternoon, from day to day, from week to week, from year to year. Um, you know, if, if a creature, a species lives 10 million years, it's unbelievable how much change they see. So how does that happen? Well, learning is a fundamentally important part of that and this whole field of epigenetics, genes being expressed as a function of what's being learned and the interactions with the social and biophysical environment are really, really fundamental to that. So uh, you have this young offspring and literally in the womb uh, during the last trimester of gestation, the fetal taste system is fully functional. So the foods that mom's selecting, the flavors of those foods are getting into the amniotic fluid. The young offspring is already beginning to learn what food is before it's ever even made one step out on, on Earth's surface. Um, at a genetic level, starting at conception on genes are, are being expressed as a function of the of the environment that young water creature is in basically so so this learning and gene expression are are happening from conception on after birth um when the young offspring is still primarily dependent on mother, the flavors in of foods that she's eating get into her milk. Other cues for the offspring as to what's, what's food. And then when the young animal begins to forage, we showed over and over again, it was amazing to see how neat this was. 
the young animals learning from mother, and they learn they learn very 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 quickly, no question about that. Um, and they learn not only what and what not to eat, they learn where and where not to go. Habitat selection, they learn what's a predator, what's not a predator. Learning is just fundamental to how uh, all of this works. Learning and gene expression, and so if you take totally naive animals and throw them in an environment they've never seen before, socially or biophysically, um, they make a lot of mistakes. A lot of times they end up dead, either from malnutrition, predation, overingestion of toxic plants. All that's revealing how important learning is. So that's, that's long-winded, but there are three legs to this stool of nutritional wisdom. Knock any one of those legs out and it doesn't work. Knock all three of them out, as we've, as we've done, uh, many times with domestic animals, by the way that we've we've ended up managing them, and I'm not I'm not being placing blame or being the big critic or anything else. I'm just reflecting that that we have done that, and then we say, well, obviously they don't have nutritional wisdom. Well, it's not considering all that I'm talking about here. For, with human food food systems, we we've, we've absolutely. Uh, We've absolutely broken all three legs. They've been hijacked right and left and so forth. You you began by mentioning Claire Sylvia, and let me wind it back around to that, and then I'll let you uh, speak from there. But I think of Claire Sylvia and uh, and the book that that she wrote, um, and and her story reflects all three of these legs to the stool. Um, so Claire's book is titled A Change of Heart, and what she's talking about is that she was one of the first people on this planet to receive a transplant. She received a heart and lung transplant. So that becomes, uh, in essence, initially why her story is very, very interesting. She's one of the first people to, to ever do this. And back in those days, obviously, it wasn't routine, and so there was a great deal of interest. And she's, early on in her book, she talks about she was in the hospital after this transplant, and the press was in there interviewing her. And uh, at the end of the interview, they asked her a question. They said, if you could have anything you want right now, what would you like to have? And she said, uh, actually, I'd like a beer. And she said she felt really badly the minute those words came out of her mouth for two reasons. One, it was such a flippant response to, to an earnest question. Two, she said, I don't even like beer. And so she uses that as a way to embark on, this, on the story of her journey that when you get the heart and lungs of another person, they aren't just machines they aren't just uh the heart isn't just quote a damn pump as as one uh person told her and the lungs aren't just breathing machines these are are organ systems that are reflecting their history basically i would argue from conception on in another living being and when you put those into your body you are experiencing what that's like. And so the book is just fascinating stories about that. And uh, 
it led her on a quest to try to find out who the donor was, where did she get this heart and lungs, and why that it so profoundly affect her whole way of looking at experiencing being alive, including broadening out her food preferences. She didn't lose her old preferences. Her preferences broadened out. And to me, that reflects flavor feedback relationships. Hearts, heart and lungs are feeding back to change her liking, to broaden her preference for everything from beer to uh, green peppers to chicken McNuggets to on and on and on. So it's reflecting that. It's reflecting the availability of alternatives that her donor had that influenced what 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 the donor liked, and it influ- it reflects the social, cultural, transgenerational parts of all those things. So um, what she does is to she eventually discovers where the organ, the heart and lungs that she had in had in her body came from. And they came from a 21-year-old male named Tim, and she uh, was able to meet his family and have these really interesting conversations that related to what she was experiencing, not only with foods and her preferences for foods, and those her broadened preferences absolutely matched what Tim loved to eat, some of the foods that he loved to, loved to eat. And so her story becomes an amazingly interesting story in and of itself, but also as it relates to these three legs of the stool on nutritional wisdom. So how else did her transplanted heart and lungs affect her? Any other ways other than food preferences? There were. It was amazing. Tim was a 21-year-old male, and so, and I think, if I'm remembering correctly, Claire was like in her mid-40s when she got this heart lung transplant. So just the level of energy she was experiencing, and uh, for one, and, you know, so here, also, here's a a male's organs in a female's body, just there were several, you know, about any behavioral thing you can think of was really um, not reversed, but altered in the sense that, that I'm talking about with the food. It just, it was very unsettling, very, very unsettling. She never expected that, never expected to, to have any kind anyway, of Anyway, we're coming emotional. to a break now, so we'll be back in a short period of time, in a minute, and uh, we will continue with this conversation. Are you looking for a great movie to watch? Tired of swiping through hundreds of different channels hoping to see something that sparks your interest? Well, I have great news to share with you. Today, everyone has either cut the cord with their cable company or are thinking about it. I cut the cord more than five years ago, and I don't miss cable one bit. There are now so many money-saving options to cable TV. My favorite right now is Roku. There are literally thousands of wonderful channels for every type of viewing experience you can possibly imagine. But today, I wanted to tell you about two very special channels, Indie Rights Movies and Indie Rights Free Movies. You will find both of these channels in the Movies and TV section of the Channel Store on Roku. All the movies on the Indie Rights Free Movies channel are absolutely free for you to watch. You can browse through hundreds of movies organized in interesting groups You can scan through quickly, like top-rated films from Rotten Tomatoes, monster horror, country drama, dark comedies, crime docs, 
films directed by women, and social issue docs. You won't find categories like these on other popular streaming channels. Speaking of social issue docs, you might watch The Big Secret. The Big Secret is the latest work by Emmy Award-winning producer Alex Voss, directed by integrative physician Susan Downs. It's all about the influence big money has on your health and well-being. If you prefer to watch movies without ads, subscribe to Indie Rights Movies, available everywhere. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. How fascinating that an animal in the womb develops a preference for food based on what the mother eats. How does that affect a human when the mother's eating junk food? Well, it's the very same thing that that occurs. And, uh, you know, there's actually quite a robust literature on human beings, uh, studies that have been done over many years now, that show that the very same things I was talking about related to these transgenerational uh, linkages and learning in utero are, are and learning uh, through cues in mother's milk that, that they're occurring in human beings. It's a it's a wonderful wonderful literature, and obviously if if the young uh, human is mother is eating wholesome foods, um, that's going to start to influence the dietary habits and the gene expression and uh, all of these things in in the offspring. Unfortunately, nowadays. Um, it's fair to say that the the food preferences of we humans have been ha- hijacked in a variety of different ways. But you mentioned the junk foods, the highly processed foods, you know, high in 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 energy um, that's coming from a, from a variety of different different sources, including high fructose corn syrup and. Uh, and sugars and so forth, which which uh, there's a good case to be made. They're addicting. Well, all of these things, if if that's what's what the uh, the fetus is being exposed to, then they become the body is changing in terms of form and function in the womb related to these compounds, but it's setting the 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 uh, offspring up in the womb to. You know, even born with metabolic syndrome, this whole suite of, of characteristics that that bode poorly in terms of nutrition and health, food selection, nutrition and health as the young offspring develops. And, uh, you know, it's certainly the case has been made that these kind of linkages are, we're seeing, we're seeing the outcome of these kind of linkages now with the crisis of obesity and diet-related diseases. That's certainly a, a one important factor that's insidious and really, uh, you know, when you think, as you're saying, it's beginning at conception and then going from generation to generation. It's a frightening, it's a frightening deal. As you mentioned in your book, that 50% of the folks in the United States are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. That's huge. It is huge. It is huge, and I guess that that's 
You know, that's certainly the downside. I'm amazed how many people, as I speak at conferences and interact with folks, how many folks, no doubt, as you too, Dr. Susan, the same thing, are doing just wonderful work to try to try to help people change their behaviors. There's a uh, a doctor I, I have known for many years who's in a little town called Dillon, which is about an hour and a half from where my wife and I live. They, they have just a fabulous program um, for people in the community. It takes place over many weeks. I think a probably 10-week program or longer where they, they just systematically work with folks, with, with groups of people to try to help to get them on a different path. And I was just reading through that outline this week. It's, it's marvelous. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's what it's going to take. We need to change, change the culture of the dietary habits of the cultures of, of the people here which would involve the this transgenerational linkages breaking those breaking those vicious cycles that we're in and that that's the beauty it it can be done it takes a lot of effort but it can be done breaking those those vicious cycles getting people to know what wholesome food is which isn't so easy nowadays actually you know as so, well avoid all the processed foods just eat fruits and vegetables and get some meat in your diet and so forth but you know, a lot of the fruits and vegetables have been selected for uh, quantity, not nutritional quality, not phytochemical richness, as I would say. So that's a challenge. And, well, what, you know, what do you select when you're in the, in the store? And uh, where do you go to select food? Same with animals. An animal that's been born and raised in a feed, or not born and raised, been finished in a feedlot, has a different composition to its meat and fat, and if it's in uh, dairy, in in milk and cheese, than an animal that's been finished on a phytochemically really rich, diverse kind of pasture. So, so you know, just getting wholesome foods into the diet is is a challenge, and then with that combination of trying to break those vicious transgenerational linkages that we're in and through getting wholesome foods in the in the body, to get the body to recalibrate in terms of these flavor feedback rela- relationships, all of that uh, takes time. But but I'm so impressed when I meet uh, meet different uh, whether it's dietitians or medical doctors, or I was visiting with a chiropractor last week when I was in Kansas. It's just it's heartening to see at a grassroots level. Um, and I think out of, out of, uh, concern, out of love, actually, when you visit with these different people, it's a really caring, nurturing environment. I think that's what's going to be really, really important for us to, to regain, um, that, that nutritional. So I want to, um, reemphasize the point that what the child or, you know, like the livestock, what they're exposed to in utero when in the womb uh, affects their preferences. And when they're young, what they're exposed to will affect their preferences. I mean, you in your book mentioned Clara Davis studies where you have young children with various nutritional deficiencies. And when they're young enough, they choose wisely enough to what their individual bodies need. But that seems to oh, I- dissipate as they get older. 
Oh, absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. You know, uh, let, let's say a couple words about Clara Davis's studies and then come, come back to your question related to older. What, what she did for, for the audience to understand, she was, um, a dietitian who was really interested in food selection and, and I don't know how, I never read this in the papers, but somehow she had this basic core belief that there was a nutritional wisdom to the body. Well, to try to demonstrate that, the way she did that, she was working with people in orphanages, and there were children that were being given up for adoption at close to birth. And so she devised a study where she had 15 children, and she followed them for six years, and they they offered them 34 wholesome foods that could be attained seasonally during different seasons in in the local market. So we're we're talking decent, you know, good foods. This was a hundred years ago, roughly, that she did these studies. And uh, she instructed the nurses in the orphanage not to give any hint of what they to to bias the children. You just offer these foods, and you allow those children to select whatever they want to select. And as you were mentioning, Susan, they, uh, if they came in with deficiencies, for instance, uh, cases of rickets, which were more common back in those days, they would go for the cod liver oil and so forth. Um, so this six years they did this, recording how much each child ate of each food in every meal. It's a stunning amount of uh, huge data set that they had. They also had pediatricians that were monitoring the health of those children. And I've read the articles they published in scientific, in peer-reviewed, um, good quality scientific journals. They said they never saw a healthier set of, of children than, the, than those children. Um, I was asked last week when I was speaking at a conference, well, what happened throughout the rest of those children's lives? And that's lost. No one knows that. That's absolutely, actually a really fascinating question. It would be so interesting to know, you know, did they continue on that path? Because Claire Davis really became the culture for those kids. That's what happened. She became the culture. Here's wholesome alternatives. Uh, we get the flavor feedback right and all that stuff and away you go. So they were, um, six years old when the study ended. And, uh, in reading some of her, uh, reflections on the work, she said what they wanted to do next, this is kind of revealing too, because, you know, you think a hundred years ago processed foods weren't the issue that they are today. She said the net, what they wanted to do was then, conduct studies like she'd been doing only with wholesome foods, only with the processed foods. Unfortunately, the depression hit during that time, and, uh, you know, the whole the whole society, the possibilities all changed. She never went on with those studies. Well, we've, in a way, we've conducted those studies since then, but, but it would be interesting. And, you know, it's interesting then to ask the question, you know, at six years of age, are you pretty well set in your dietary habits, or can you can you easily be hijacked by processed foods? And I think the answer is yes, you can easily be hijacked by processed foods. I seen China a few years ago, um, and people there there wasn't a hint of obesity around any of the the folks I was was with or seeing. But boy, a lot of the junk kind of foods were being introduced and on those things. And we'd make stops occasionally in the, 
these young grad students, thin as rails, they'd go in, they'd just load up on junk food, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, that's not so good to, to be doing that. That's where, where that can lead to you is probably not not going to be so good down the road. So I think it can so what be you're saying at, is, at age. So what you're saying is animals, as well as young humans, do have, the body has a nutritional wisdom, but somewhere along the line with our diet and lifestyle, we as people have hijacked it, uh, looking, you know, destroying the three legs of the stool, and possibly we can get it back by trying to look at healthy foods. Absolutely the case. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. You know, I think probably at at uh, at any age, it can be it can be uh, that wisdom can be hijacked through processed foods. They're so incredibly reinforcing in, in terms of those feedbacks. You know, I often show a video. Always show a video of sheep eating straw uh, when I when I give a talk. It's just a short little video, but. Half of the sheep that are in this video have been infused with with a blast of energy. After they ate straw, the other half just received water. The half that received water show no interest whatsoever in eating the straw. It's just not, they don't want it. The, the half that got the blast of energy immediately after they ate the straw, they loved the straw. And I, when I show that, I say, that's what's happened with processed foods right there. That's, that's it, you know. And so... Um, it can certainly be hijacked and hijacked at it, at any age, and the key is to recognize that I think in ourselves, and uh, and then to to figure out um, as as I was mentioning the, through these programs, figure out how to how to get off of that. I know with my wife and I, one of the things we we decided years ago was that. We were going to be very careful when we were in the grocery store. If it wasn't something we thought was wholesome, we weren't going to put it in in the basket because if it gets home, you can't resist it. It's too hard to resist. So, you know, making decisions like that. I also think, you know, trying to get really wholesome fruits and vegetables, that that's not a trivial challenge of getting things that are really wholesome, that are phytochemically rich, that have great flavors. You know, the quality of fruits and vegetables has declined in, in virtually all of them over the last half century. They, we selected, as I was mentioning earlier, for, for yield, not for phytochemical richness. Oftentimes foods taste, the processed foods are so, or the processed, the, these fruits and vegetables are so absolutely bland, it's no wonder nobody likes them, including children. They're, we've taken the flavor out. Or we select it for really sweet kind of stuff. I often think that when my wife Sue and I are hiking here in Montana in the summer and fall, you can find 12 different kind of berries on these plants. And boy, are they, do they have a richness and a punch. It's not just sweet. It's a, it's a robust richness of flavor. And we've selected against that. So again, not trying to be the big critic, but I think these are things that, that need to, to change. And so it's not as simple as, well, just go to the store and get fruits and vegetables. It's how do you find or grow your own um, fruits and vegetables that have this richness of flavor that the body's loving because it's it's meeting needs of needs of cells and organ systems as opposed to, you know, basically eating cardboard. No, 
So that's the really double whammy of the hijacking is, is we selected against richness of flavor and phytochemical richness in fruits and vegetables, and that scaled up to, to meat as well, by the way. Um, animals, meat and dairy coming from phytochemically rich landscapes as opposed to a feedlot. So, so that's one part. The other part, then, you get these processed foods that, that uh, deliver these incredible blasts of energy, and then you fortify them with things that, that, that uh, humans need. And it's, it's really a, it's a double whammy that leads to a severe hijacking of the nutritional wisdom of the body, in my view. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of scary. Um... I've got a question. I mean, some of the vegetarians blame animals for depleting the ozone layer. Um, what is your opinion on that? I think that is a a very important issue. I think it's fundamental to a conversation that we need to have as a country and that other countries need to have. That conversation is how do the foods we eat, from the way they're produced at the grassroots level, from the soil, through what we're producing, the plants, through to the human diet, through to what that's doing for, um, for the health of soil, humans, animals and the and the broader environment including including the the climate um, we just had a paper published in Frontiers of Nutrition just came out a week ago today that really gets into these kind of issues and I, I'm happy to share that that link if people type in Frontiers of Nutrition and my last name that paper will come up but it's a very careful exploration starting with different kinds of production systems you know do you finish animals in feedlots or do you finish them on on landscapes and we're making the argument that it's way more costly to the health of soil of plants of herbivores and of human beings and ultimately of climate to run through the feedlot system as opposed to the phytochemically rich kind of landscapes. And we're also arguing that grazing, when grazing isn't grazing, isn't grazing. When animals are properly managed, and there's a lot of nuance to how you do that, but there's a lot of knowledge. I spent my career in departments that worked on that, of how you graze properly so that you enhance biodiversity of landscapes. That and this broader area of regenerative agriculture, when you look at ways to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, that ranks number one in this book titled Project Drawdown, which is the most comprehensive review that's been done of ways to help mitigate changing climates. They look at 80 different ways, and when you look at these, at the things I've been talking about, cover crops as opposed to... to monocultures of corn or, or soybeans or whatever it is, proper grazing, civil pasture, those rank number one as ways to, to take CO2 out of the environment. When I was doing the review and I put a paragraph in this paper related to it, it was really fascinating. I came across a paper, just came out, it just came out, and it's a quite long and quite comprehensive uh, paper. The essence of the paper is simply this, though, that when you change what's happening with farming practices, you can reduce CO2 and change 
global temperatures. And the way they put this story together was to argue that after the Native Americans were wiped out on this continent and in South America, they were doing a lot of farming. And those, all those, that cultivation that they were doing no longer was taking place. Those landscapes were revegetated by native plants, grasses, forbs, shrubs, and trees. And that caused a drawdown of CO2 from the environment. And that, that, uh, further enhanced the Little Ice Age. It's a fascinating paper, but it provides evidence for what a lot of people are arguing that through proper uh, use of landscapes or management of landscapes um, in appropriate ways, that can be a powerful way to help mitigate climate change. And I never see that. Uh, it's disappointing to me. I'm going to sound like I'm on a tear now. But when when politicians and so forth are talking about changing climates and, you know, things that can be done, I never see that talked about. Yet that's in, in the thoughtful literature related to it, that, you know, that's a key way, and it's something we can do. And you start to think, okay, we're going to improve the health of soil, the the life uh, in those soils, which we're going to get diversity of plants across these landscapes. And that's going to improve the health of not only the domestic animals that are foraging on those, but wild animals as well, the diversity of animals, omnivores, herbivores, carnivores, below and above ground. And that then the foods that we eat are going to be better for us because of that. And then, in the end, uh, scale right up to, to the health of the planet. It's something that's, uh, that's I think it needs to be a, a huge part of the conversation and, uh, and of how we, in my view, become locally, become once again locally adapted to the landscapes that we inhabit and really hands-on involved in those landscapes. I often think, too, you know, of all the money that, and I make this point when I give presentations, all the money that we spend on maintaining lawns and golf courses. And I, I'm not, you know, totally against that, but if we were to take a lot of that lawn and put in uh, vegetable, herbal, medicinal gardens, get our hands in the soil, start growing our own food, and not that we can't have a bit of lawn, but the amount of resource, that the amount of fossil fuel, the amount of water in the arid west, it's stunning how much we use to do something like that. And then we put on pesticides because we don't want even one dandelion. It, like, flies in the face of everything nature does. Uh, nature's about biodiversity, biodiversity, diversity, diversity. And so, and it's possible to do that. But it takes a total change of, of consciousness, actually, and what looks nice. Um, you know, in the neighborhood where we live, and we love our neighbors, but, you know, the, the, what looks nice to them is a, is a monoculture of grass with no dandelions. For my wife and I, what looks nice are all the native plants that grow in this landscape, the little forbs that come on in the spring, the flocks and so forth, and the, and the uh, larkspur. And then as you go to the summer, other sets of forbs, and then into the fall and the grasses and the shrubs. That's beauty to us, but that's, you know, it's just the ways that I'm not saying one way or the other. It's the way you come to look at things. And 
But well, I'd like to kind of uh, step in here a little bit. So, I mean, I know uh, Natasha Campbell McBride, who's heavily involved with the Western Price Group, that they really believe that plants are not, I mean, that animals are not depleting the ozone layer. And what scares me is uh, this uh, vegetarian push that we've got uh, the animals are passing too much gas and destroying our ozone layer, that they're coming up with these impossible God knows what meats, and that's pretty scary to me. There's a couple of things I found interesting in your book, just dietary recommendations. As you, as we mentioned, diabetes and prediabetes is found like in 50% of a population. And you mentioned one, at one place that if you start a, um, a meal with carbs, the insulin tends to go higher than if you put the carbs wisely at the end of the meal. And I found that interesting. And you also wrote that eating a high-energy meal for breakfast will help control your blood sugars better. Those are just two interesting tidbits that I found in your book. There are many interesting and they're tidbits, ve- but they're very practical that was interesting. advice, very practical bits of advice, are they not? You know, that I found that the research that's, that's taking place on that fascinating myself as well, and it's just something as simple as changing the order in which you eat, uh, just as you said, as, as you eat different foods can, can alter um, glucose and insulin responses uh, within the meal and even throughout the day. So, yeah, very, very practical kind of advice. Well, we uh, have less than two minutes left, so I would like to recommend Fred Provenza's book, Nourishment what animals can teach us about rediscovering our nutritional wisdom, and what would you like to say in the last minute and a half and how people can get a hold of you? I'd like to say thank you very much, Dr. Susan, for taking the time to interview me. I've enjoyed it immensely. People can, I'm happy to correspond with people, to interact with people, happy to give talks on, on this subject. And my, my email address is fred.provenza at emeriti. E-M-E-R-I-T-I dot U-S-U dot E-D-U. Uh, that's contact information where people can get in touch with me if they're interested in what I've had to say here today. Well, I'm very interested. I mean, the animals have nutritional wisdom. When we're very young, we have nutritional wisdom that we automatically pick the foods we need. We hijack that with all the processed synthetic foods and pesticides. Anyway, I hope that the audience looks into his book, does some research, so you can learn more about this. You can help yourselves, help others, and above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.